Our scripture reading this morning comes from the second and third chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astounded, astonished, excuse me. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down from them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And from Luke 3, 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, good morning. My name is Sid Druin. I'm the pastor here at North Cross Church. Um, I'm thankful to be with you all again and to open the scriptures and uh, to study them with you. I'm gonna keep adjusting. Okay. Um, so if you're new to North Cross, we'd lo- we're so glad you're here. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. If you're new, if you've been here again, this is second time, third time, can't, you've lost count, we're glad you're here too. And we hope that you can hang out with us. We're gonna hang out afterwards outside. It's a great time to catch up. For those of you virtually, please try to connect. We'd love to connect with you. Um, you can shoot me an email, sit at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com. We're glad you're with us as well. As Jody just read for you, we're looking this week at two related scenes in the earlier life of Jesus, as told in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as you all know, we've been for the last year off and on studying the life of David, and we finished that last week. And next week, just to give you a teaser, we're going to start a new series in the, in the Bible on the letter of the Ephesians. Um, the letter to the Ephesians, we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the letter to the Ephesians as a church. Um, and I'm going to talk a lot more about this next week, but just to give you kind of a trailer for what we're, why we're doing what we're doing, um, it's, it's really that the letter to the Ephesians is God's I have a dream speech. It's really his sort of attempt, um, just like Martin Luther King in that wonderful moment in 1963, Ephesians is this sort of challenging and humbling vision for what true human community should and could look like. 
And so we're gonna study it with that posture in mind and realize it's a timely and needed reminder to God's people in such a time as this in 2021. And now we're gonna pick up back into Luke's gospel and I'm gonna give you some context just so you're not familiar, if you're maybe you're not familiar with the book of Luke, it's a 24 chapter kind of semi, like, like an ancient biography of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're picking up in the second chapter of Jesus's life when he was, it was 12 years after Jesus's birth in a time when Jesus had pimples, his voice cracked, and as always, God is his father. And before we discuss this passage about Jesus as a 12-year-old, I'd like to take some time and pray. So would you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, um, we are thankful for the the opportunity to gather um, and for this word to us. It's rich this morning um, to, to think about what you've done for us and who you are with us. And I just pray that you would help us to soak it in. Give us ears to hear it, eyes to see it, a heart to dwell and abide with it, and hands and feet to do it. And Father, um, meet us where we are. And a lot of us in our very different spaces and and, and places, even as we look to your word. Um, I think about the people that are suffering, and I think about the families that are suffering. I think about the Hooks family, and I think about the Tillises and the Twos. Uh, We pray for Bill Alt and his health. We pray for um, just so many other people that are struggling, the Chadbournes, um, Lord. And we just, we do lift them up. We lift up the Johnson family. And we ask that you would be with them. And we lift up the people that are doing really well. And we celebrate the win with them. And we thank you for your kindness and your your pleasure um, that they've gotten to experience right now. And Lord, I pray that you would be with all of us and whatever our heart condition is, wherever we are that you'd once again, by your spirit, through your word, meet with us in ways that we can't explain away. We ask that to treasure you more, Jesus, to ponder you and your significance anew in our hearts. We ask this in your name, amen. So several years ago, I listened to an interview um, by, about and with a woman named Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews is maybe familiar to some of you, maybe not. Uh, kind of the Idina Menzel of the 20th century. Uh, big Broadway actress, starting a lot of famous things. My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, dare I say Mary Poppins. Uh, some of us are very familiar with that one. Apparently, Julie Andrews also had perfect pitch and a four-octave voice. Now, uh, those of you who are music majors, and Ben might correct me, she actually only had a three-and-a-half-octave voice with a four-bass note range. I don't, that's all I, I don't know anything else. <laughs> so, please, if you're going to ask about the sermon, don't ask about that part. Uh, I don't know much there besides that. But anyway, she bursts onto the, the musical Broadway scene as a teenager, and she is in demand. She is talented. She's uh, gifted. She's great to work with. And so she's kind of the it person for a long, long time. And remembering her several, several decade career, Uh, Julie Andrews kind of recollects that it was a time where it was both exhilarating and exhausting. And eventually, her fatigue started to get the better of her and outweigh the excitement. And she needed to take a break from from the relentless singing and touring and acting. She just needed a rest. But what was difficult was that she was, this was a time when people around her all just wanted more of her, 
right? Whether it's producers or fans or agents, they just kept calling. They kept raising her salary. They kept asking for more appearances, offering her more stardom. And eventually, though, Julie Andrews just couldn't take it anymore. And she was exhausted. She was on the brink of physical and emotional breakdown. And she just said, I've got to take a break. But she had just started this wildly successful musical, Victor Victoria, and it was going on tour around the United States and in the world. And so they called her up, each individual, the producers, the director, then the whole cast and crew. Called her up, round one, no. Round two, no, no, still no. Round three, begging, promising, flattering. Julie says yes. Yes to round three, and she agrees to tour with Victor Victoria, Reflecting on this decision later in an interview that I heard, Julie Andrews called that yes to the third request a foolish mistake. And the reason it was foolish is because on that tour of Victor Victoria, Julie Andrews wrecked her overworked voice to the point where she had to get vocal surgery, but then the surgery that was meant to fix her voice permanently actually permanently um, damaged her speaking and singing voice to this day. And when I heard that story, I immediately thought about my own life and my own struggles to say no and disappoint others even today, this morning, even this week. And I also think about this area that we live in. We live in this area, Lake Norman, Davidson College, with its relentless, flattering, promising demands, right? Demands for marathon level fitness and rock hard abs. Demands for a job that is globally and personally meaningful, well-paying, but also has reasonable hours. <laughs> for a spouse that's Instagram perfect, you know, unique personality, great smile, but also tearfully sensitive. And then there's demands for time and demands for money to have cool hobbies and a clean, spacious house. And of course, well above average children with well above average grades and activities. And that's to say, whether it's planning for that future or living in this present, we live in a time and we live in a place where there are so many people and so many activities all demanding, inviting our talents and our gifts and our personalities, our everything. But we're limited. We're finite. And we can't say yes to everything. So what do you say yes to? And what do you say no to? How do you know when to say no? When do we say yes? In our passage this morning, we're going to see the infinite God of everything wrestling with the same questions as a finite, limited human being. Luke the whole, and the whole Bible give us just this really one snapshot, this one scene from Jesus' entire childhood and adolescence. And it's an interesting one to highlight, isn't it? Maybe not what you would expect or I would expect. And this is, these are the very first recorded words of Jesus. And the first time he opens his mouth, he opens his mouth to his mother. And do you know what he says? No. No. He, no, he's exactly where he's supposed to be in his father's house. Verse 49. And then in verses 39 through 40 and 51 through 52, we're shown and then told that many times that Jesus says, yes. Yes to his all-too-human, very frustrated parents. But what gives Jesus the strength, the wisdom, the favor to know when to say yes and how to say no? 
the evidence of this early scene of Jesus, especially when taken with his baptism, these scenes show us that Jesus' actions were rooted in his relationship with his father, the Lord God. And who Jesus believed he was determined how he lived. Who Jesus believed he was determined how he lived, how he thought, how he spoke, how he felt, how he acted. And of course, this relationship between identity and behavior and lifestyle also applies to us, right? A Christian counselor and former professor of mine in graduate school, Jim Cofield, is fond of saying it this way. We are faithful to the images of ourselves that we carry. We're faithful to the images of ourselves that we carry. That is, Cofield and really the whole Bible are telling us that we behave out of whatever identity we think we have. We think, we feel, we act out of who we believe we are. You can be a swan and you can act like an ugly duckling. You can be a prince, but if you forget you're rich, you can act and live like a beggar. And really, I just have two sets of questions for this this morning and the outline is kind of built around it. Who is Jesus and what does that identity lead him to do for us? Who's Jesus and what does that lead him to do for us? And then of course, who are we and what does that identity lead us to do and not do? Those are our outlines, points, and verses are just repetition and examination of those two sets of questions. First, and this is, by the way, maybe projected behind me, but certainly in your e-bulletin. First, Luke 2, verses 39 through 45, and chapter 3, verse 21, they help us to ask, who is Jesus as a human person? And then, what does his human identity lead him to do? Second question. Luke 2, 46 through 52 in chapter 3, verse 22, we're, we're supposed to ask, who is Jesus the Son of God? And what does his divine identity lead him to do? And then the third and final question is really just our entire passage. It's meant just as a giant application. Who are we? And what do our identities lead us to do? So all three of these points are behind me or in your bulletin. And let's begin with the very first question. Who is Jesus? As a human person, let's look at first at the ways that Luke 2 and Luke 3, the very beginning of those two passages, expand on that question. So we're going to look there. So verse 41 actually sets the scene really nicely. It's Jesus and his family headed south from Galilee up the mountain to Jerusalem. It was their annual religious tradition to go and participate in the Passover festival. The Passover festival is essentially when God's people remembered the climax of the Exodus when they fled Egypt. That is when God's plague against the firstborn uh, children of the Egyptians passed over the firstborn children of the Israelites. And they're commemorating that, they're celebrating that, and that's why they're in Jerusalem. But if we read closely, verse 42 is where we should just sort of pause and do a double take. Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer that everything that was and is and is to come, that Jesus is not just a human being, but thousands of years ago, Jesus was of all things, a 12-year-old boy. It's worth wondering aloud together. 
Jesus didn't skip that, that dependent step of being a fragile baby, like a newborn, right? You know, with a neck that can't hold up its own bald head. That's pretty impressive. And then he has to have other human-created hands wipe his divine hiney and feed him drops of, wa- of milk. But the God of the universe, choosing not to skip the awkward tween early teen stage of 12, the Lord Almighty willing to dwell among the social and hormonal agony of 12 years old. That's truly astounding. In case you're an adult feeling sentimental, nostalgic, or maybe just numb about what it felt like to be 12, let's ask Wes Hill for a little bit of help about what puberty felt like. I felt mortified by the pimples covering my temples and nose and chin, and whenever I tried to talk to someone else, my own age, I could feel my face turning a hot shade of red and my armpits sweating. <laughs> I would have preferred never to have a conversation with any peer if I could help it. <laughs> um, and I remember what it was like to be 12. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. But when I was 12 years old, I remember being in the backyard pool with my friend Peter. And we were hanging out, doing what 12-year-old boys do in a pool. And all of a sudden, we started talking and half bragging half knees knocking about what girls we thought we had a chance with. (laughs) And I made the near fatal mistake of telling, uttering the name of the girl that I wanted to go on a date with. Lisa, Lisa. When I mentioned her name, it was like fireworks went off in my bony chest. (laughs) It was like all of a sudden the music around the pool got soft and fuzzy and sweet. It was like Phil Collins was there in the flesh singing the Disney animated Tarzan soundtrack over me. The longings, like vines swinging all over me. And my friend Peter, taking advantage of the moment, gave the pep talk of his life. Or maybe he just told me I was all talk. And so somehow I found myself deciding that I was going to ask Lisa out on a date. We were going to go steady. We were gonna live happily ever after being shuttled to and from the movies in my mom's powder blue Chevy Astro van. It was gonna be amazing. (laughs) And even more sadly, I decided to do the deed to ask Lisa out at a middle school dance. (laughs) What was I thinking? Maybe I hadn't quite pictured what a middle school dance was gonna be like to ask somebody out at. I hadn't thought about the fact that I'd have to cross a gym from the guy safety huddle through the no man's land to the women, the the young girls huddled laughing nervously and staring on the other side of the gym. And it gets worse. I did what a lot of uh, sixth graders with a bossy older sister would do. I had my mom and my sister straighten my curly hair with a hair dryer with a straightener attachment on the end. And then I found the perfect preppy long sleeve shirt, a rugby at the time, and jeans. I'm sure they were pressed down the middle. And I went to this dance in my mom's Chevy Astro van, and I could still remember constantly checking my straightened but curly hair out in the, the, the dash, the, the windshields and the doors. And I could also remember just sort of making my way shakily to the middle school dance. And then I entered the dance, and the rest is a deeply repressed post-traumatic blur. (laughs) I made my move, pretty sure, crossed the no man's land, went to the huddle of girls, found Lisa somehow in the crowd, and I asked my question. And Lisa, of course, said no. 
she had no idea who I was. <laughs> How was she going to go out on a date with this guy? And so I went back to the guy's huddle, an embarrassed mess. And really, I can remember going home with my 12-year-old blow-dried hair, my nice collared shirt, pressed jeans, and the flooding hormones, totally ashamed. I remember going to bed that night and just wishing that I would wake up and be 25. That's how it felt. And I can't resist sharing this part of the story, which is, it's true. The whole story's true, and this is, this is amazing. Years later, Peter married Lisa. It's true. <laughs> Can you believe that? I was just a pawn. My wingman rope doped me. It was just, anything's better after that. Uh, but here, look, here's my point. My point is this. Jesus became all of that. All of that. All that 12-year-old humanity, right? The church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, he tells us what Jesus assumes, he heals. What Jesus assumes, he heals. And that means that Jesus assumed our, yours and my, our 12-year-old selves in order to heal that peace, that scared strand of our story and our full humanity. Jesus endured the surging hormones, the red-faced acne, the sweating armpits, and the social catastrophes just so he could know exactly what we needed by personal experience just so he could know everything about us and call us there and then right now, right here, out of all the deep-seated shame and social fears that we have. I mean, just look at the solidarity he shows with first-century religious people. People like us performing or trying to perform everything according to the law of God. Law of the Lord, verse 39. He went every single year with his family to the required festivals like the Passover, and he even humbled himself spiritually by getting baptized in chapter 3, verse 21. John the Baptist's wilderness baptisms were actually a sign, a first step of turning away from your sin. And even as a 12-year-old, Jesus knew no sin. He didn't need to get wet. So what was he doing? Jesus got baptized in order to fully identify with us. Us, you and me, we who are so prone to private and public moments where we love something too much, or we love someone too little. We hurt ourselves, we hurt God, we hurt others by thinking and doing what the Bible calls sin. Jesus said and showed us in so many ways in this passage, I'm with them. Those are my people. He's mine. But the story about tween Jesus in Jerusalem during the Passover and adult Jesus at his baptism, these stories don't just show Jesus fully human, they show Jesus as fully divine, that is fully God. That's our second point this morning. According to these verses, Somehow, Mary and Joseph, in the midst of sharing LaCroix in the hot summer sun, they, they lose track of God incarnate. How's that possible? For the better part of four whole days. Can you imagine? It's wild. And finally, when they look, the least light, they're like thinking, no, there's no way he's there. The last place they look, the temple of God, they find their own son wowing the religious professionals with what he's saying and what he's asking and his answers. 
And Mary, though, finds him and she gets in a full-on mom mode, right? And confronts Jesus with all of her anxiety and all of her fear, pent up for four days now. And she goes ahead and just blames Jesus for the last four days, right? This is my paraphrase. How could you, after the countless hours, Joe, your father, apprenticed you in carpentry. After the countless hours we stayed up teaching you the religious festivals, after all that, you made us greatly distressed. And what I love is Jesus calmly replies with two questions that are just a sample of the wisdom that he's showing in the temple. How did you not know? This other question, isn't it natural for me to want to be with my true father, God? See, Jesus is telling Mary and Joseph and all the rest of us something very important. He is the son of God. He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's equal in power and glory and perfect love. And therefore, it's quite natural for Jesus to say yes to an opportunity to spend time learning about his father with religious professionals in his father's house, the temple. The only known street address for, for God at that time back then. And really the words of God the Father that he speaks over Jesus at the baptism, they're just confirmation of who Jesus is. And they also are fuel for Jesus' desire to act out of that identity. God booms, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus' belief that he was pleasing and beloved of the living God made him also able to not fear. He's not fearing Mary and Joseph's disappointment throughout his life. He's not taking on their guilt or of losing track of him. He's not getting defensive or intimidated by their great distress. And of course, this leads to a question, how, about, how are we doing with that? I'm 41 years old, and I'm still worried about disappointing my parents. <laughs> how are we doing? But look, Jesus' identity as pleasing and loved by God also equally enables us to say yes. Yes to parent, his parents, yes to going back to Nazareth, yes to being submissive to them, verses 50 through 51. Living out of God's fatherly love allowed Jesus not to have to prove his own freedom and independence. He didn't have to rebel. He could safeguard his heart from needing to do what other people expected of a wild outside of the box God. And hopefully you're already doing the application here too and seeing Jesus' example for us. What does it look like for us to see respect and to see keeping our word as ways of being authentic? But Jesus' life is also the power by which we can imitate Jesus, right? His ability to say yes and not fear missing out and his ability to say no and not fear disappointing someone else. Jesus kept the law, including honoring his parents so that his, by his death, what Jesus calls his ultimate baptism, by that death on a cross, he could give his identity to us. He could give his status in the eyes of the ever-living, omnipotent, all-powerful God, his status once and for all to us. So we too can have God boom over us. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And by the way, that was shouted over Jesus. He hadn't done a lick of public ministry yet. 
It's not like God's saying, yep, just how I raised him. What's going on there is the same thing that's going on for you. He's saying that over your life, by faith in Jesus, not because of anything you've done or are about to do. Notice God is not saying, you're forgiven, so fine, I guess I have to tolerate you. He's not saying, you're forgiven, so just don't mess up because I'm tired of cleaning up after you. God is saying, you're forgiven. Your moral debts have been canceled. And you're, be- and you're beloved and you're well-pleasing to such an extent, you're so rich in that, that you cannot outspend your way back into debt. And you are my treasure. And so we arrive at our third and final point this morning. Who are we and what does our identity lead us to do and to not do? We've already seen the way that Jesus' identity, believing in who Jesus was and what he did out of that identity actually changes us and gives us benefits and changes our identity. Oh, to be a child showered by divine light and and divine delight. And it's this identity that can help us to start to know when to say yes and how to say no. And really, that's all we're going to go with. And, but it's kind of abstract to think about an identity making us able to do that. So let me kind of give you a story that might ground this a bit. Jim Cofield, that professor I quoted earlier, he has a son named Pierce. And one day when Pierce was about 12, the same age roughly as Jesus in this passage, they were driving in a car together. And out of nowhere, Pierce just sort of says, Dad, do you think I could be an astronaut? Do you think I could be an astronaut? And Jim proceeded to miss the point, like every parent, and sat there and gave, him, gave Pierce a lecture about studying hard and getting into the math and sciences and not missing his STEM requirements. And so then maybe possibly he could just, you know, be an astronaut because after all, NASA doesn't hire just anybody, Pierce, right? And Jim described how he watched his son out of the periphery of his vision just sink down into the bucket seat and look away out the window. And so Jim thought about it and he realized that what what Pierce was actually asking in that moment, and he came back to Pierce and Jim said something like, Pierce, you know what? I'm really sorry about my my answer the other day. What I really think, I think you can be anything or you could be an astronaut if you want to be. I think you've got what it takes in this life, son. I think it's not about what you do. I think you've got what it takes. You see, Jim Cofield realized what we're always asking. We're always asking people and things to answer the question about who we are. That's what we're doing. Pierce was not asking about a potential job as much as he was asking his dad, do you think I have what it takes? Can I make a difference? Am I special? Will you delight in who I am? And do you realize these are our questions? These are the very questions we ask every person. We ask every request or demand to answer for us, which is why it's so hard for so many of us to say no to so many things, but also why it's so hard for others of us to say yes to very much. Oftentimes, instead of looking to who we are to answer the question what we should do, we look to what we do to answer the question about who we are. And this is why we struggle to say no to the resume builder 
we don't really want to do. The work project outside of our job description. It's the same reason we say yes to yet another fad or self-improvement project. It's why we continue to stress about how we left it with family and friends, with business deals and bosses. Because deep down, many of us believe that that person or that project will tell us finally and fully who we are. Well, tell us we matter. If I could just do that or get that, I'd be delighted in. And so often we take on other people's guilt and their disappointments in the process. But what would it look like to say yes and no, to live life out of God's approval instead of for God's approval? What would it look like to answer who are you before you answer what should you do? What if all the questions we're asking at a fundamental level to everyone and everything were already answered by the God of the universe? Finally and fully in Luke chapter three, verse 21. Am I special? Will you delight in me? You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son, period. It's finished. Do I have what it takes? Can I make a difference? With you, I am well pleased. Period. No conditions. No other references required. And Jesus, you are beloved. You are well pleasing. And this truth helps us to meet the people with enjoyment in our lives instead of competition. It helps us to greet opportunities with freedom versus guilt about not doing enough or fear of disappointing other people. Believing this is how God knows us, knows me with his full on, full tilt delight makes me want to be in my father's presence more. It actually makes things like this enjoyable. It makes things like the Bible worth reading. It makes things like prayer a conversation and not a duty. But let me end with a story that's meant to, to bookend the story I began with. It's about another very talented female artist. We started with Julie Andrews. This time we're gonna end with Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou, unlike Andrews, performed, when she performed, she did her art poetry out of approval, knowing who she really was, instead of for approval, needing to know who she really was. So sadly, my Angelou's story begins very difficultly. She had something kind of unspeakably difficult happen to her as a young girl, and the adults around her handled that act with violence and just made it all the worse. And so um, she could not physically or emotionally speak. Her vocal cords went mute. The future poet laureate of the United States of America didn't say a word for several months. Several months later though, after that incident, after going mute, Angel Angelou's mother turned to her at, between things at a random moment, at a bus stop of all places, and she said, with sincerity, you know Maya, you're the greatest woman I've ever known. You're the greatest woman I've ever known. And she meant it, and Maya knew she meant it. 
And Maya Angelou heard that and she treasured those words up in her heart and she slowly but surely began to live out of them and believe them. And she thought, maybe I am a somebody after all. Maybe the lies aren't true. And so Maya began to slowly to speak and to write and to express her talents and personality. And Maya Angelou became a voice for the voiceless. Hearing who we are from a parent, but more so from our heavenly father, that makes all of the difference. It sustains us, it directs us. When we have too much to do, when we've seen too much to even care anymore, the question becomes, do you know who you are? Who are you? Who are you before anyone or anything else comes? Can we even imagine, even this morning, even for a moment, can we hear from the God, the Father, that yes, that's right, the God of the universe is pleased with me. Me, busy or bored. Me, hurt or happy. Me, pressured piecemeal or left entirely alone and lonely. Because of Jesus Christ, God loves me and he loves you and he delights in us exactly now and here and all the more so then and there. Would you pray again with me? Father, this is just and really, really hard to believe because it's such good news. <laughs> such good news. And I pray that you would massage it into our hearts. Would you help us to soak in it? I pray we'd wake up on a Thursday morning when the alarm goes off and we'd think, that's true. That's who I am. I am who you say I am. And Lord, I pray that you would make this truth livable and breathable. Would you make it something that we can be a part of together and remind ourselves of together? Would it change our very lives? We ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. Amen.